0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. Uh, today, we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We are, for an all points, halfway, I guess you'd say, through chapter 17. We've covered the first point, which is the Babylonian mother in verses 1 through 6. So now, in today's podcast, we're going to cover the second section or begin to cover the second section, there's quite a bit of information here, Uh, verse 7 through uh, 18. And this will describe the Babylonian monster, the Babylonian monster for us. And within uh, that section, the Babylonian monster, uh, we have, uh, let's see, one, two, uh, Yes, two sections there, <laughs> trying, trying to get all the notes here. Uh, the first section, verses 7 through 11, describes his advent, his advent, and then verse 12 through 18 is his advancement, his advancement. So today, uh, we're going to start the study on the Babylonian monster with this first section, his advent, verses 7 through 11. And uh, let's just read that passage first, and then we'll get into breaking it down and see how far we get, okay? All right, uh, Revelation 17, verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And I know when you read that, you're like, wait a minute, what? It was and is not, and was, and is not, and yet is, and all that, so that, that's why we study it, and that's why we break it down, so we're going to kind of get into all of that a little bit here, uh, in today's study, okay, so, uh, his advent, uh, the first thing, uh, that we're going to look at here is in, the verse seven, and in the first part of verse eight, whence the beast comes, whence the beast comes, and that first part, it says, and the angel said unto me, wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Now, one of the first things that stands out here, and we know that the woman, the Babylonian mother, was described for us, remember, in verses 1 through 6. Now we're getting into the monster. And here this verse separates uh, the two. I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her. So, obviously, there's two different things but 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 the first thing here to point out is that the angel asks him why he wondered indicating that the cause of his wonderment would be removed or at least minimized by an explanation now it's it, it was not enough to simply reveal these things in a vision so the angel proceeds to tell John that he will explain the mystery of the woman and the beast and this is a point that we've noted out before with a rule to follow in the book of Revelation. Uh, things that are written as they are are, are are to be taken as literal. When they're explained, uh, it is usually symbolic. Okay, that's just kind of a simple rule to follow. And and so here the angel um, says that he's going to describe what it is. And, and it's not just for John's benefit. It's also for our benefit. The reason he explains it is, again, as this is symbolic, Um, God is not going to leave us in confusion. The Bible tells us clearly, God is not the author of confusion. He will explain that that needs to be explained. Okay, the next phrase, The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. All right, now this phrase is basically a summary of the entire history of the beast. Okay, An entire history of the beast now the the phrase what or the word was is looking from the middle point of the tribulation right at the three and a half year period okay looking from the middle point of the tribulation the beast will have already experienced a rise in power so it's looking from the middle of the tribulation period backwards okay he will have had at least three and a half years of world leadership and most likely some leadership role even before that. Uh, the emphasis is that he has some type of history. He didn't just show up out of the blue. Uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, when I wrote that, I, I kind of had misgivings about just saying that uh, and just assuming that he doesn't just show up out of the blue. Um, th- the way history is taking... <laughs> events are happening today, I, I mean, let's, let's look at this Russia and Ukraine war that's going on. Uh, many of you couldn't have even uh, picked the president of Ukraine out three, what, three weeks ago, four weeks ago when it started. You wouldn't have even known probably where Ukraine was on a map. Uh, but now within a space of a few weeks, boom, I, I mean, everybody knows Zelensky and, and, and what's going on and through watching the news, maybe, uh, uh, they, they put Ukraine up on a map, so you kind of get an idea of where they are. They are southwest of Russia, where the country of Russia is. Ukraine is to the southwest point. Um, unless you rehearse it, you just don't know it. So, so that phrase about he, he's, he didn't just show up out of the blue, uh, not necessarily true. Uh, he may, in fact, just show up right out of the blue, but, but, Considering the level of the role that he's going to have, uh, I would tend to think that there's going to be a little exercise before we get to uh, the tribulation period in in that he's going to be someone who is at least in some points known. Uh, There's going to be a foundation set. Now, he may not be globally known, uh, but he would be known by at least someone Or a few out there. Okay, now the next phrase, is not. Is not. Now suddenly and dramatically, he disappears at the apex of his role in power. And you think, disappears? I thought he's always present. This is referring to Revelation 13, 3, when he receives this deadly wound to his head and is quickly gone. Uh, He just disappears off of the uh, scene as it is. It doesn't mean that he died. As a matter of fact, I, I, we we proved we talked about that when we went through chapter three. Uh, this is going to be an event that the false prophet is going to use to uh, picture him as being like Christ. But now remember, he's the anti-Christ. Everything is the opposite. Where Christ actually did resurrect, and, and of course, everybody's going to be talking about it. this is Easter weekend. Uh, Christ was actually resurrected, this Antichrist, the beast, is not going to be. He'll be the exact opposite. Okay? So I I think that it may be a deadly wound to his head uh, that takes some time to heal from, but he's not going to actually die. Although the false prophet's going to claim that he did. All right? Uh, Then that next phrase, shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now, this description ties in two previous passages already, uh, referring back to that verse, Revelation 13, 3, the second part of it, and his deadly wound was healed. Okay, so that tells us right there that he didn't die. It, it's going to be healed. And then uh, in further back in chapter 11 and verse 7, it says, and when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And that's talking about those two witnesses that God's going to send on the scene. Um, It's possible that these two actually inflict the wound on the Antichrist. Um, There's a pretty good argument for that. Um, And I don't know how long it lasts um, there's obviously some little short period of time is not, um, I don't, I don't, it doesn't literally say it's a day. It doesn't say it's a week or a month. I don't know. Now, now the tribulation period is a set time. Uh, so it couldn't, it can't take too long. I mean, not years. So, uh, I, maybe it's, uh, if it's a deadly wound that heals, um, the Antichrist is going to have to portray him as being resurrected whole. So there has to be at least some point of time given for him to heal. Now, that's not saying that Satan doesn't have the power to heal him. Uh, he cannot raise him from the dead, but he can heal him. I don't. It doesn't say how long. All we know is that it's some little period of time that it's going to take, okay? Now, at this point, Satan's power will be part of the greatest deception ever to be unveiled before man. The phrase, out of the bottomless pit, indicates that the pit is still open from when the fifth trumpet angel opens it. In Revelation chapter 9, and verse 2, and the locusts come out. Okay? Now, as it seems quite obvious from this, Satan has ushered the beast into the pit and then out again, indicating that from this point on, Satan dwells in some way in the beast himself. I don't know technically how he's controlling him uh, uh, or, or how much possession. I, you know, there's demon possession. So why couldn't Satan possess the beast? You know, and we know the, we know the beast is going to be a human man. Or, or we assume it's a man. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a man. Uh, but, but Satan pretty much takes control somehow. All right, from that. Now this is not just some version of the greatest show on earth. You remember the uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which <laughs> kind of sad, but it's going out of business. Uh, remember we travel around the world and show animals to. Uh, people who might not ever get to see them or, or 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 be close enough to a zoo uh like we're fortunate enough to have here uh where I live uh that that's large enough it has pretty much every animal you can think of well, i'm sure it doesn't have them all but you know what I'm saying you, there's a good portion of them uh North carolina zoo is quite large but many places uh in the United states don't have a zoo or maybe maybe kids don't have a way to go, but the circus was a great way to introduce, uh, children to animals of the world that, that they might not ever see. Now, of course, um, you know, not trying to chase a rabbit here, but, you know, many of the groups, uh, mistreated these animals, yes, um, and, and I'm one of them, I'm a firm believer in, in treating animals with respect, but they're still animals, okay, uh, but, but, yeah, you should not, um, abuse them, all right. But not not saying that the zoo did, but but the uh, the effects of treating those animals badly um, put a bad light on many of these groups, like the circus, uh, who had these um, what do you call them um, um, exotic animals and And there was always that microscope of of just how they were treating them and how how much extra care they had to go and the attention they had to give them uh that the cost went up to the point where they just couldn't operate anymore and, and so that's the shame of it, but you know they're out out of business, but as it is that, that we're talking here the that this is not just some version of the greatest show on earth, uh, but rather an intricate plan of deception. That includes mirroring the very act of Christ dying on the cross, going into the bottomless pit, taking the keys of death and hell from Satan, and resurrecting again. The beast here unveils the exact role of the Antichrist. In other words, he performs everything he possibly can, just like Christ did, but it's still false. False. No <laughs> T on there. Uh... He, he's going to act like he dies he will actually go down into the bottomless pit uh he's of course not going to be able to take the keys of death and hell from satan because satan no longer had them at that point christ already had them but he's going to act or or make the show of force that he goes down into the bottomless pit and he's going to appear on earth again and they're going to uh announce that all over the uh, news networks that he's alive again. He has been resurrected. And, and if you think that ain't going to happen, just I, I tell you to look at the news now. Um, they're all about spouting false claims left and right. There are no sources anymore. It's just whatever the rumor mill has. Okay. <laughs> get off of that before I get in trouble. Okay. Next phrase, go into perdition. Now here we see the role of uh, of a season, like how long is it going to take, uh, and what we're talking about here is, is the use of the word season here uh, in describing um, not a set amount of time, but but a given amount of time, okay? Uh, we don't know how long a season is. Uh, it could be a short period of time, could be a long period of time. Uh, the use of the word season is not a distinct set amount of time that every time the word season is used, it indicates the same amount of time. It's just a block of time. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Acts 24.25, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Hebrews eleven twenty five, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And then Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So all of these are talking about a season, but yet there's no distinct block of time representing what this season is. And the word season itself is used over 50, well, it's used exactly 56 times in the Bible. Now, 50 represents the number of deliverance or liberty. And then the number six is the number of imperfection. And it's also the number of man, by the way. So... Is there a way to know how long a season may be? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 tells us, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now the key is in the word son, in the term here, son of perdition. God is telling us that from the moment this beast is revived, he is doomed already, thus he is only a son of perdition and not one who would carry out a long and prosperous rule. So this phrase is carried out in Revelation 19:20, and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So this season here uh, tells us it's not going to be years. We do know that. I mean, this is the point where the second half of the tribulation period takes over. So at the maximum, we're talking three and a half years. But several events take place. During this and before this, and there's the time that he's gone and all that. So, I mean, we can only shorten it to uh, less than three and a half years, okay? So, the difference in the two places mentioned, number one, the bottomless pit, and number two, the per, uh, perdition. The bottomless pit in the Greek is the word abusos. That's A-B-U-S-S-O-S, abusos. It means depthless, the abyss, deep pit. This is the realm where Satan and his demons reside currently. This is where they're at now. This is their home now. It doesn't mean they stay there or trapped there because we know Satan roams to and fro on the face of the earth. And we know that demons have that same ability to do that. But this is their realm, uh, headquarters, if you want to say. Perdition, however, is the word, uh, a Greek word, apolia, apolia. Uh, Apoleia, Apolia, and it means ruin, loss, destruction, or waste, and this is a place of eternal damnation. So, where he say he calls him the son of perdition, uh, he's the son of eternal damnation. That that's what uh, the phrase is is describing him as. Okay, so this is uh, whence the beast comes. Now let's look at why the beast comes in the second part of verse eight why the beast comes. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And what is described for us here is this master plan of deception coming full circle. The entire world is going to fall for it. The entire world. Uh, and you say, well, how how do you get that out of there? And it said, they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life. From the fa- So the entire unsaved world, uh, okay, to be specific, the entire unsaved world will fall for it. Uh, Revelation 13, uh, the end of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, it says, And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, which is Satan. And they worship the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? <laughs> that's, that's a good reason. All right. Uh, so the incredible statement made right in the middle of this verse is like a light in the middle of darkness. Uh, and we're talking about the the verse here in chapter uh, 17, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the word. This is an incredible. This is like a... a a little spark in in the middle of all this darkness. Now, James Burton Kaufman in his commentary here, he says, and I quote, The eternal purpose of God is known by him from the beginning regarding all things and all people. Of course, there are unfathomable mysteries about such things which we cannot understand, but the meaning of the words is clear enough as they regard the purpose in view, encouraging the redeemed. In whatever manner the entire world may be captured and enthralled by the charms of the satanic beast, the true believer will not be deceived." So, at once we are drawn to the statement that God already knew who these people would be from the beginning of time. This phrase could be used out of context to suggest that those who are saved are pre-selected by God and no one else has a chance but the proper meaning is that god already knows who will be saved but every man has the opportunity god just knows how it's going to come out but god is not dictating this every man has an opportunity this phrase however is used during a time when god is dealing strictly with the jew and not the gentile race we are even told in revelation fourteen three how many exactly there will be. Revelation 14, 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 140 and 4,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Again, that's referring back to that group which were sealed. And it's 12,000 representing each tribe. Okay? All right. Uh, Moving on, verse 9, where the beast comes, verse 9, where the beast comes, and here is the mind which hath wisdom, now there's two words that we want to talk about here, and they have two different meanings, understanding and wisdom, understanding is the Greek word nous, that's n-o-u-s, n-o-u-s, and that word means having the ideas or sense of Of another. In other words, uh, like saying, I understand what you're saying. In other words, I'm fully capable of having the idea or the sense of what you're talking about. Okay? We're we're on the same page, basically. (laughs) Okay? Wisdom is the Greek word Sophia. And and it's just like the name that we use in English today, S-O-P-H-I-A. Sophia. It means the right use of Or exercise of knowledge. Now, understanding is the ability to know, but wisdom is the right way to use that knowledge. Okay, Uh, it's the ability to know what is most just, proper, and useful. Wisdom is not just intelligence. It's it's knowing. The the key word here is right. uh, Knowing the right way. That's wisdom okay, as it is explained in the Bible, okay, people throw the word wisdom out uh, quite liberally, but anyway, all right, now there is a similar statement to that made in Revelation 13, back in Revelation 13 and verse 18, uh, and it says, here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. So what the angel was telling John there is that there is a connection here by saying that the number of the beast must first be understood before before John could gain the wisdom of the following statement that comes after that. In other words, spiritual discernment is necessary for understanding symbolical prophecy, okay? You can't just pick up the book as a human being, and explain what this Bible is trying to say, you have got to have spiritual discernment. It's a book of, it's God's words. It's not man's words. And that's where man gets tripped up where they try and rewrite what the Bible says and come out with a new version. You, you just can't do that. And we'll get into the end, actually the end of the Bible tells us, he that addeth or he that taketh away from the word of God, these plagues, uh, that are written in the, I'm paraphrasing the but the plagues written within these pages will be added unto him. Um, adding a new translation is, is adding to the Bible, taking away from the Bible. God said it is finished, and he meant it. it it's finished. All right, oh, the next phrase, the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, as mentioned before, mountains are used in prophetic scripture to mean kingdoms. Not a geographical marker. It's not literally seven mountains. It represents seven kingdoms arising during a a time or an era of whatever. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Now, David, in describing the changes and events which he experienced as the king of Israel, says in Psalms 30 and verse 7, Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Was David literally talking about his own little mound of dirt. No, he's talking about his reign as a king, his kingdom. Uh, the Lord in his threat against the throne and power of Babylon said, Jeremiah fifty-one twenty-five, Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyest all the earth. And I will stretch out my hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain, <laughs> a burnt kingdom, a destroyed kingdom. Now, the Lord describes the millennial kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, verses uh, 35, and he says, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Uh, In his commentary, Joseph Seiss, that's S-E-I-S-S, if you want to look that up. Joseph Seiss, it gives an incredibly accurate and clear view of this passage that we're talking about here. And it's a little bit long, but it's worth reading. Um, So I'm going to quote. He says, and I quote, The description, therefore, so far from fixing the application to the papacy or to the city of Rome, uh, decisively settles that it cannot possibly apply to either, for neither has seven such mountains. The late Albert Barnes has written in his notes that all respectable interpreters agree that it refers to Rome, either pagan, Christian, or papal. Of course, he is one of the respectable interpreters, but then he should be able to tell which of the objects he names it is, for it cannot be all three. Most people assign Dr. E.W. Hingstenberg, the great Berlin professor, a place among respectable interpreters. But Hengstenberg says Rome cannot possibly be meant by these seven heads. The angel says they are seven regal mountains, seven kings, seven great ruling powers. Rome papal cannot be meant, for Rome papal has no such count of seven regal powers. Rome Christian cannot be meant, for Rome Christian, as distinguished from Rome papal, never supported and carried the great harlot in any possible sense and could not, without ceasing to be, Christian. Rome pagan cannot be meant, for Rome pagan ceased with the conversion of the throne, and no count of emperors or kings can be found in it to respectably fill out the angel's description. The succession of the forms of administration enumerated as kings, consuls, dictators, decimers, military tribunes, and emperors were not seven kings or regal mountains. Prior to the empire, most of these administrations were less than anthills in the history of the world, and furnished rather slender ponies for the great purple-clad and pearl-decked mother of harlots to ride on in her majesty. Rome surely comes into the count of these seven mountains of empire, but to make Rome the whole seven, including also the eighth requires a good deal more respectability of interpretation in that line than has thus far appeared. Barnes is sure the whole thing applies to Rome because this woman hath rule or kingdom upon the king of the earth, and there was no other empire on the earth to which this could be properly applied. But this assumes that the woman is an empire for which there is not a particle of evidence. The woman is not an empire any more than the church of Christ is an empire. She rides upon empires, kings, and powers of the world, and inspires, leads, and controls them. But she herself is not one of them, and is above all of them, so that they court her, and are bewitched and governed by her, governed not with the reins of empire, but with the lure of her fornication. This woman is longer lived than any one empire. We have seen that she bears the name of Babylon and is not destroyed until the day of judgment. The seven imperial mountains on which she rides must therefore fill up the whole interval. Or there was a time and the most of her history when she did not ride at all, which is not the fact. Seven is itself the number of fullness which includes the whole of its kind. The reference here is to kings, to mountains of temporal dominion, to empires. It must therefore take in all of them. And when men once get over their respectability and rise to the height of range of the interpreting angels' view of things, they will have no gif- difficulty in identifying the mountains or the times to which they belong. End quote. So, in understanding this, we can see that these mountains represent seven kingdoms. <clears throat> it does not represent the uh, different empire, emperors of within Rome or any of that stuff. I, th- I think he explained that uh, and broke it down very well for us. Okay, on to the next phrase here. Um, it says, on which the woman sitteth. On which the woman sitteth. Now, the fact that there are seven kingdoms spoken of uh, tells us that they each had a beginning and an end, but we also see that this woman rides on all of them, also telling us that she has experienced a continual power throughout all of their eras. These powers support the woman just as she accepts and uses them. So, they play a role and they support her, but she ends up using them and... uh, Ends up outlasting all seven of them. Okay, uh, next phrase. Uh, When the beast comes. When the beast comes, verses 10 and 11. Uh, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So the first phrase here, five are fallen. Now, first off, notice the word fallen describes the end of these five kings as opposed to they died, or any reference to that. Now, the language suggests that these five kings are rather kingdoms instead of individual kings. Fallen is used in the Bible to describe political catastrophe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Revelation 14.8, the angel cries, Babylon is fallen. Uh, Again, Revelation 16, 19, the cities of the nations fail. It is worth noting that the four beasts of Daniel in chapter 7, verses 3 through 8, are identified with four of the kings of Revelation 17, and are thus identified as kingdoms as well. So this indicates five kingdoms, empires, or dynasties that have ceased to be. While there have been many great kingdoms or empires historically, only five are identified by God. What makes these five worthy of note? First of all, these five had evil dealings with Israel. That would certainly bring God's attention to them. Also, these five foreshadow Satan's last outpouring of fury in the end times. Now, these five kingdoms are first of all, number one, Egypt, represented in Pharaoh. They sought to exterminate the Jews. His end-time counterpart will be destroyed by a prophet like unto Moses, Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Uh, also, one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11, 3 through 13, represented there. Uh, number two, uh, the second nation uh, recognized by God was Assyria, and this is represented in the king uh, Sincarib. Um, Sennacherib, however you want to pronounce it. I I think it's Sennacherib, I I believe. But anyway, he brought an army against Israel to destroy the Hebrews in the days when Hezekiah was the king. Uh, His destruction uh, was by angelic intervention, and it's it's one of my uh, uh, favorite passages in the Bible. In Isaiah 37, verse 35, when it says Uh, that there were 185,000 killed, but it doesn't say that they were killed. It uses a rather peculiar statement in that it says that there were 185,000 dead corpses. Dead corpses. Now, that's a strange statement. What is a corpse? A corpse is a dead body. So, why would the phrase say dead, dead bodies? Right? Dead corpses. Dead, dead bodies. And, and I, I think what it means is that it's representing double dead. They not only died physically, but the fact that they started messing with Israel and God told warned you know, humankind what would happen if they go messing with his kids, uh, they also died spiritually. They were, in fact, dead corpses. All right. Uh, and this is talked about Revelation 13, verses 14 through 20. Uh, the third kingdom is Babylon represented in Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it kills the nobility and castrates the royal line in an attempt to destroy the nation of Israel. Uh, All must worship his image or die in the book of Daniel. Yet, in this time of trouble, male virgins bear witness to God's truth in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's strange when you note the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their true Israeli names. It's not their Hebrew names. It's their Babylonian names. Isn't it strange that we recognize these three Hebrew boys by their Babylonian names? Yeah, strange. So the sealed witnesses face the beast and a hidden remnant escapes and remains in secret places until his overthrow. So Babylon shows this and and mirrors this picture here. And uh, again, you can read about this in Daniel chapter one, verses three through five, and then all of chapter 3, basically, verses 1 through 30, uh, talks about it. And then also the the contrast to that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Uh, the fourth kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by King Azurus, A-H-A-S-E-U-R-S, King Azurus. A formal decree is issued calling for the death of all Jews. And and you want to read about this in the book of Esther. This takes place in, in, in the book of Esther. Uh, now, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther uh, at all, for the people are out of fellowship with him, yet they pray and he answers while they are yet in exile and, and still in unbelief. <laughs> Isn't that strange? What a merciful God we truly serve. Now, this is represented in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 3 through 17 which describes for us the 144,000 sealed Jews and the great multitude that are saved uh, and sealed. Um, The fifth empire will be that of Greece, represented in Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, although Alexander spared Jerusalem during his military campaigns, his successors set up the Greek gods throughout the Holy Land, and during the days of the Maccabees forced all Jews to worship these Greek gods, or to die. The Hebrews were aided by God as they met this oppression with armed resistance. And that's described in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. Okay, so that that is an explanation of uh, these five uh, kingdoms that are represented as um, that statement, five are fallen. That's who it's talking about, okay? Uh, Again, in review, that's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, all right? All right, next phrase, one is, one's in the present, is thereby identifies with a power that is currently in control during John's day. That is clearly identical to none other than Rome. Rome was the superior power in that day. It has to be Rome. Uh, the next phrase, the other is not yet come. Now obviously this is in the future based on John's point of view. Now currently, based on what we already know about the beast and current world conditions, we can be assured that the description of this kingdom is still in the future from our point of view as well. This kingdom represents the final empire to be established by the beast. In Revelation thirteen one, the beast with seven heads and ten horns is seen rising out of the sea. This empire will come to power during the tribulation period and portray the same hatred for Israel first seen in the dragon, but here identified in political form. In Revelation 17, 3, the woman, Mystery Babylon, the great, is seen sitting upon this beast. Uh, The final empire, in its political form, has now become the supporter of a worldwide religious power, too. Okay, so the other's not yet come. Uh, And then it finally says, therefore, he must continue a short space. He must continue a short space. Now, instead of the word season being used, here is the use of a phrase, a short space. Space here is the Greek word oligos, not holy ghost, but oligos, (laughs) O-L-I-G-O-S, oligos, which suggests an even shorter time of space than a season. Now, while we would be quick to suggest this represents the reign of the beast slash Antichrist, entire duration of the Great Tribulation period, which is three and a half years, this cannot be true. For this seventh kingdom will actually be followed by an eighth kingdom, which we will read about in verse 11. So actually, the seventh kingdom doesn't last this long. It can't because it will be usurped by an eighth kingdom. Now that we have identified these kingdoms and what they represent, uh, and in case you're lost, let's, let's go back and review. Now, we're talking about seven mountains, right? Seven kingdoms. Uh, the first five are Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the one that is—that is, that is Rome—and the other is not yet come. That is the uh, <clears throat> the uh, mystery Babylon power, the the political power that the uh, Antichrist is going to set up during the tribulation period. That's the seven. But then, yeah, again, verse eleven tells us that there's going to be an eighth kingdom, an eighth kingdom. Okay, so. Now that we've identified these kingdoms and what they represent, look back at the ending phrase of verse 9. The ending phrase of verse 9, it says, on which the woman sitteth. Now, obviously, each of these kingdoms came to an end, but as stated, this woman had a continuing role throughout all of them, a continuing role throughout all of them. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that Roman Catholicism was not around during, so during the beginning of these kingdoms back then uh so to say that this rep- this this woman uh this mystery of babylon is roman catholicism that's out the window already it it's it's what we have already discussed in that it represents this mystery babylon religion it was the cult going on uh back in the old testament with uh um Bathsheba, and then it continued on, uh, in, in the New Testament, They did, uh, it is part of the Roman Catholic thing now, today, um, it's going to be part of Islam, it's going to be, it's going to swallow up Islam, Roman Catholicism, uh, 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 Hinduism, all of them, they're all going to be meshed into it, they all have some role or so part, and that's why the introduction to the chapter, we went through that, spent so much time on showing how the web that started with Nimrod and his wife Semiramis and that Babylonian false religion, its web has has completely encompassed the entire world. And all of these false religions that are set up, and they are, they're false. If they're not of God, they're false. I mean, that's a clear definition of them. You know, you you can worship God how you want to, but when it comes to the day and standing in front of him, uh, judgment and you have to give an account, what's going to matter? What God says or or what you think? (laughs) I'll let you think about that. (laughs) All right. Now, uh, in his commentary, again, Joseph Sice, uh, commenting on the relationship of these kingdoms with this woman, he says, and I quote, They were each and all the lovers, supporters, and defenders of organized falsehood in religion, the patrons of idolatry, the foster friends of all manner of spiritual harlotry, Nimrod, the hunter of the sons of men and author of despotic government, established his idolatrous inventions as the crown and glory of his empire and intertwined the worship of idols with the standards of his power. It was the same with Egypt, whose colossal remains, unfading paintings, and mummy scrolls confirm the scripture uh, portraitures of her disgusting devotions and tell how the priests of these abominations were honored by the throne of which they were the chief advisers. It was so with Assyria, as the recent exhumations of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh sorry, abundantly attest. It was so with the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel, who lived amid it all, has written. It was so with Persia, as her various records all declare. It was so with Greece, as her own most cherished poet sung, her mightiest orators proclaimed, and all her venerated artists and historians have set forth. It was so with Rome, as all her widespread monuments still show, and all the Christian testimonies with her own render clear and manifest as the sun, and it will be so with the last, which is yet to come, as declared in the apocalyptic for showings, and in all the prophecies in the book of God upon the subject. It requires but a glance at history to see that spiritual harlotry has ever been the particular pet and delight of all the beast powers of time. If ever the worship and requirements of the true God won their respect and patronage, they soon corrupted it to their own selfish and ambitious ends, or never were easy until freed from the felt restraint. End quote. I, uh, I tell you, I'm quickly becoming a fan of this guy Joseph Cys. I mean, he lays it out there, and he don't hide nothing. And, and uh, it's not about calling out people's faults, okay? I know there's a few of you probably out there to get offended, uh, maybe by how he brings it about. But listen, when it, when it comes to um, things of faith, when it comes to doctrine, uh, we need to be exact. We need to be clear. Uh, we we need to know the truth. And so making room for all of these errors and apostasies and all that, um, it, it's it's only harming us. We need to tell the truth. And we need to identify those that are harming us by coming up with falsities and, and that nature. So, uh, yeah, he likes to call them out. And I say, good for you. All right, verse 11. Uh, and the beast that was and is not. Now, this phrase references the beast that was coming of power and then was killed. And we've already kind of discussed that. Uh, the second part of verse 11 says, even he is the eighth and is of the seven. <laughs> All right, you get what? Okay, now where verse 10 tells us that there are seven kings, which represent seven world empires, here now is mentioned the eighth. And then we're told it is of the seventh, of the seven. Now, this is saying that this eighth kingdom, which does not represent an eighth world empire, separate and of itself, but actually is one rising out of them. It's one rising out of them. Uh, Charles John Ellicott, uh, in his commentary, he says, and I quote, No eighth empire shall rise but the wild beast, now smitten in all the seven heads of his power, Will in the convulsive death throw seem an eighth power, in which the ebbing life of all the seven finds expression. The wild beast linked itself with seven great empires in succession, these all fell. The wild beast is left as an eighth. Now, in short, the seven kings represent the world empires, while this eighth is the actual beast himself. As he takes control of all political and religious power to himself alone. Okay? In other words, he's going to absorb uh what this Babylonian woman has set up in, in the religious side. Uh he's gonna take over total control of it. And so that eighth is is a combination of 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 all of what the empires have brought in and then the religious part of it too. Okay, uh, the end of verse 11, it says, and goeth into perdition. Now, once again, God reminds us the second time, because you remember it was mentioned, first of all, in verse 10 about perdition. So here's the second time, that this beast will not reign for long at all. Carl uh, August Oberlein, uh a German Lutheran theologian once said, and I quote, while the church passes through death of the flesh to glory of the spirit, the beast passes through glory of the flesh to death. End quote. Okay, so uh, that is the first section here in the Babylonian monster in his advent, verse 7 through 11. Uh, So next one, we'll pick up with uh, verse 12 through 18, which is his advancement. I don't know if we're going to get all the way through that, because it's even longer than this section, but uh, we'll get through what we can get through, right? (laughs) Okay, all right. So uh, let me just say once again, thank you for listening. Um, I, I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, if, if you're going to listen to this in the next few days, uh, of course, today's Saturdays, so there's not much of it left. Uh, but this is the Easter weekend. And it's important to note uh, why we're here and uh, the the events that made the, what we recognize this weekend uh, as, as significant. It, it's not enough that Christ came to earth and lived among us and died. What separates him from all the other religions of the world, religious leaders of the world, is that he is the one that has been resurrected. All the others are martyrs, okay? Uh, Or there may be some other name for it, but there's only one Savior, and that sets him apart from all the others in that he resurrected, and he lives in heaven today, and that he is coming back for us, if we accept him, uh, his blood for, and, and, and payment for our sins, uh, you can be a part of that resurrection that we've been talking about, okay, all right, so, uh, thank you again for listening, pray for me, pray for your local church, uh, pray for our country, and the leaders of that country, (laughs) really need it bad, um, and, and again, as I've said in the last few weeks, pray for the people of Ukraine and Russia as well uh, with, with all of that suffering. And I, I don't see it ending anytime soon if, if it actually is going to end. Um, I'm not being a prophet here and saying that I think this is possibly uh, opening the gates uh, to the tribulation period. Uh, the events are set, um, there, there, this is going to be a big fight that I don't think is going to end until it's all over, it's, it, it just looks that way, um, again, tomorrow there could be a ceasefire, you never know, um, such as world history, right, and, and trying to prophesy from current events, you just can't do it, okay, all right, rambled on enough, so let me let you go, and, um, uh, hopefully I'll, uh, you join me on the next podcast. Okay. Thank you. and God bless you and have a great day.